0: All right, and We are back. We are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass and we are Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace. Tonight we are joined once again by a guest that we have had on the podcast before and we are thrilled to have him back, Pastor Josh Scott with Grace Point Church in Tennessee. Pastor Josh, thank you so much for coming back on, man. We're so glad that you agreed to come back on our show.
1: Thanks so much. I don't get invited back to many places, so this is <laughs> quite the honor.
0: Hey, fantastic. I I don't know why. You're incredibly congenial. You're well-spoken. You're polite. I guess it's just all of those heresies you like to bandy about, like the one that we're going to talk about this evening, the uh, idea that Jesus was corrected, that time Jesus was corrected. And for a lot of people to hear that topic or to read that topic, it's going to be startling in a lot of ways because it really upends so much of the baggage and the intellectual um, purview that we take as it relates to Jesus as being the perfect sinless lamb of God, with him being a partaker in the divine nature, for him being a divine being that You know, that he could be corrected about anything as if he were ever wrong. To imply or to say that Jesus was corrected is to imply he was wrong. And so for a lot of people, this is something that is, it's just a non starter. Even if you try to have a conversation with someone about it, they're going to balk at it because. There's no way that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, could have ever been wrong about anything. And yet, when you look at the biblical record in Matthew's gospel, you see that such really was kind of the case. And so we're going to be talking about that idea this evening. And I know it's something that Kevin is really, really psyched to to discuss tonight. He heard you give a a sermon about this not too long ago. And he was like, dude, we got to have Josh on to talk about this. And I said, well, let's do it. Let's have him back. That was a fun conversation (laughs) that we had the first time. So let's do it again.
2: Let's do it. And Lee, let me say it is fantastic to have you back this week where you are so eloquently spoken and you're able to ask questions and give such a wonderful summarization. Whereas I'm like, Hey, question number one. <laughs> well, dude, well, it's
0: just good to have my voice back. Yeah. Joshua. last week, whenever we had our, our last guest on, um, I wasn't able to participate as much because we had just got back from Las Vegas where my daughter competed in the American Ninja warrior world's finals. And I spent the entire weekend yelling and screaming and didn't have much of a voice to speak of. I was good to talk for about maybe 30 seconds to a minute at a time, and then it was gone. So it is nice to be able to have my voice back fully functional to be back tonight.
2: That's awesome. So, Josh, I'll go ahead and jump right in here to really just kind of set the tone for the evening, because one of the things that all of us probably can agree on is that, we didn't think much about the humanity of Jesus growing up. It was more about his divinity, and rightly so. I think we need to, to understand and put the focus on the divinity of Jesus but it's also the humanity that sometimes goes unnoticed. And one of the first verses that I had to memorize when I was in church as, as a young child, I forgot exactly how old I was, but it was Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And we talked about little Jesus growing up and how Jesus learned. And, and, and it really made it relatable, especially as we were little kids but then we grew up, and I didn't really think much about the human Jesus, and we tend to not focus that much on the human Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. What are the implications of a human Jesus, and what does that mean when it comes to things such as Jesus being sinless, Jesus not, um, not violating the law per se, which that in and of itself is an interesting conversation because Lee and I did a podcast on Jesus violating the the letter of the law, but keeping the spirit of the law. And so mm-hmm. what is true law keeping anyway? And uh, we talked about that two, week, two or three weeks ago, I think too, about the uh, Good Samaritan. And that had yeah. a lot of uh, good conversation that came from that. A lot of uh, people had some good questions on that mm-hmm. too. But I say all that to say, explain to the audience why you think Jesus was corrected and what you think the clearest example of that in scripture is?
1: Well, so the the story that I'm talked about in the story I did the sermon about, I took from Mark 15 or Matthew 15. The story also shows up in Mark chapter seven. There's just a difference in Mark chapter seven. Matthew changes the detail. Um, As most scholars would argue, Mark wrote first and then Matthew would have had access to Mark when Matthew wrote um, Matthew uh, what we call Matthew and so in Mark 7 there's a story of Jesus encountering a Syrophoenician woman but in Matthew uh, the writer changes it to a Canaanite woman and that plays into to my overall interpretation of what Matthew is getting at in the story but the story goes that Jesus enters Gentile territory and a Canaanite woman um, which is interesting because Canaanite Canaanites didn't exist at that point in history anymore uh, but a Canaanite woman comes out and asks Jesus to help her daughter Jesus essentially says to her, you know, um, he ignores her. The disciples then plead with him to get rid of her. And he says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She responds with, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. Jesus is astonished by her response. He can't believe her great faith. He didn't expect it from her. And he changes his mind and goes and heals her daughter. And then goes on from that moment to heal a bunch of other Gentiles. And then he goes on to mass feed 4,000 plus Gentiles who were hungry. So it really is quite this remarkable instance of Jesus having his mind made up um, and then having that mind changed when this woman responds to him in the way she does.
0: So in that sense, whenever Jesus changes his mind as it relates to your sermon, the way I'm understanding what you're saying is, is that Jesus has this mission in mind. And in Matthew 15, and it's somewhere, oh, where is it, verse 24, whenever she comes to him and you know the disciples are getting annoyed by it and they say, look, dude, just, you, you got to get rid of this woman. She's driving us bananas. And Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of yeah. Israel, basically saying that my ministry is limited to the Jewish nation. And, and then, what's
1: faci- I'm sorry, but what's no, no, the line is if you go back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commissions the 12 and sends them out and gives them the specific command only go to the lost sheep of Israel. So when Jesus commissions the 12 to send them out to do, you know, to claim the kingdom, it's only to, only to the lost sheep of Israel. When Jesus encounters this woman, he's still got the same opinion. Our work our work is only for our own people. It's not outside of that. So,
2: so what you're saying then is that within that paradigm of, of understanding that this is supposed to be what has even been deemed as the limited commission, and that it was only supposed to go to the Jews, and even when Jesus encounters this woman, that's still – The framework that they are operating through and under, that this is what we're supposed to be doing. But then through this through this uh, example, through this circumstance, this situation of her faith, Jesus was astonished and it literally changed his mind from a human perspective. He was as far as his humanity is concerned. And from that point forward is when we begin to see in the Gospel of Matthew the mission change. It's no longer just to the Jews, it's to the Gentiles.
1: Yeah. I mean, immediately Jesus leaves and goes and heals some Gentiles. Then he goes and feeds 4,000 plus. And, you know, Matthew wants to make sure, I think we understand, uh, or at least his original audience, because it would have been much more clear to them. But after the, the feeding, there are seven baskets of food picked up, seven baskets of leftovers. And you know, with the feeding of the 5,000, I always got, I always understood the 12 baskets represent Israel, right? The 12 tribes. What are these seven baskets doing if, with the feeding of 4,000 Gentiles? And then the connection got made for me that if you go to Deuteronomy 7 and you, you look at the command um, for conquest, that these are the nations that you are to go into the land of Canaan and, and destroy. And the literal Hebrew is put them under the ban which means totally devote them as sort of a sacrifice. You kill everything, everything that has breath, men, women, children, infants, animals. There were seven of those nations. And then Jesus goes and and he performs a mass feeding for Gentiles. And when it's over, there are seven baskets of leftovers picked up correlating to the same number. It's almost like what Matthew is saying, that this experience after this experience, not only is Jesus changing his mind, but they're undoing the conquest narrative that now we're not going to kill our, we're not going to kill these people who are our enemies. Now we see it as our, our responsibility and calling to feed them and to care for them and to provide for their needs. It, it really Dude. is. A wow, radical man.
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> wild. And that's a connect because I've always wondered about those seven baskets as well dude you just blew my mind we're only we're not even 10 minutes into this podcast and my mind's yeah, blown. We, can,
2: we can like go ahead is- and just end the podcast right <laughs> now maybe i put uh, on a high note just yeah, and this, <laughs> This is good, man. This is the shortest podcast we with the have best information done. in it in 10 minutes, man. Well, Dude, that's that's phenomenal.
0: Well, here's what's wild to me is whenever you look at this, it really does make sense whenever you think about Jesus in terms of, of the Jewish perspective of Jesus and the Jewish perspective of the early church. You know, the, the church and Christianity originally started out as a subsect of Judaism. It it was a Jewish denomination, you might say. You know, you had the Pharisees, you had the Hellenists, you had the Sadducees, you had the Christians. And that's really how it started until the doors were blown wide open for the Gentiles. And whenever you look at the 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 narrative of the Messianic prophecies within the Old Testament, you know, Jesus was supposed to come around as the ultimate fulfillment of David's kingdom. He was supposed to be the ultimate representation of God's rule on earth as a King over God's people, the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, et cetera, et cetera, from that Jewish perspective. And, it It makes sense that that first half, we might say of his ministry would be focused on the Jewish nation. It would be focused on Israel. It would be focused on bringing them back, you know, under the umbrella, you know, from the diaspora, you know, the ten northern tribes and the subjugation of Judah and everything else, to bring everyone back into himself or under himself, under God's rule. And yet you have this expansion to the Gentiles. That meta-narrative, it it makes sense looking at it in hindsight, but how would that have been received by a Jewish audience? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They didn't care much for the Gentiles either. But these were gonna be, these were people, especially whenever that term Canaanite is used. Like you said, the Canaanites didn't really exist anymore. It really drives that point home that Matthew's trying to make. So how would that have been received by the Jews? Why is that such a startling thing?
1: Well, you know, I think so, um, I mean, the way I would interpret the way the Hebrew scriptures are used by New Testament authors, in so many cases, it's them having the experience of Jesus, at least having their own experience of Jesus. I mean, it's very unlikely that any of the gospel writers, for example, were eyewitnesses. But, um, but the reality is they, they went to the Hebrew scriptures, they had an experience, and then they went to the Hebrew scriptures and said, how, how do we make sense of this? Because this is not what we expected. Um, And so I think that's what you you see this throughout the New Testament, it ripples, um, this idea of Gentile inclusion and it being a challenge, right? I mean, if you go to the book of Acts, which is kind of a late text, but you go to the book of Acts and you see with Peter having this vision of the scroll being unfurled and, you know, kill and eat in Acts chapter 10. And Peter says, I've never touched an unclean thing. And the voice of God says, don't call anything I've made clean, unclean. Right, then you have sort of a conflict of, in, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, I think, where they're, yeah. with Paul, they're debating on how, you know, what the Gentiles have to do to get in. Of course, at, after Acts 10, there's Cornelius. There's all this stuff happening. And then you come to things like the Book of Romans, where the Book of Romans is not a systematic theology. It's Paul trying to say to a community of people that are made up of Jews and Gentiles, you're, you're actually one. You're not against each other. And everything yeah. he's doing in Romans is about bringing these groups that are pulling apart close together. So I, I think it was the central issue of the post—you know—once once the Jesus movement left Palestine and moved into the broader Roman world, this became a central issue. And so I think you have you you see these writers of Scripture, whether in the Gospels or whether in the epistles, they're they're trying to make sense of their experience of Jesus. And also the challenge it posed to their preconceived world view about how this whole thing works, and they're you know that's what they're pulling out you know in the Hebrew Scriptures you have two visions you have two different one is a universalist vision and one is a very nationalist vision yeah right you have some prophets who are like in the end we're going to win then you have other prophets who say in the end everybody gets invited to the party on the mountain um, and it, it, and Jesus causes them to rethink where they land on that whole who who gets invited to the party.
2: Yeah, and this this really goes hand in hand with a lot of different podcast episodes we've been doing recently. We had um a friend of ours Dr. Grant or uh, yeah, Dr. Grant, sorry, I always get confused. We got Dr. Lee Grant and then another another friend of ours who came on the show and uh, he is a professor of Old Testament theology and Hebrew and he dealt a lot with the tensions within the Old Testament and the multi Uh, the the multivocal nature of the Old Testament. It's not just this one unilateral voice that you hear throughout scripture, but oftentimes you see corrections being made, you see different perspectives being given. And this really just fits right within that of how even the way that the Jews understood what is Jesus going to be like, there were a lot of disagreements. And so when Jesus came, most people believed, as Lee pointed out just a minute ago, that he was going to set up this earthly kingdom, that he was going to reign, that he was going to conquer his the the enemies. and and, and in large part, we forget. And when I say we, I don't know if we forget, but a lot of people forget this is the primary reason Jesus was crucified <laughs> because he was he was not the the Messiah that they were expecting. He was not fulfilling their expectations. And so because of that, you know, this 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 guy, you no, know, we, we shouldn't be loving our enemies. We should be killing our enemies. D- Jesus, don't you know what the Bible says? Why are you doing this? And so that's why they ultimately killed Jesus and had him put to death. But I would like for you, for our audience, to unpack something that you said within the context that in in Matthew's account, it actually says a Canaanite woman, and you had briefly alluded to the fact that there really weren't any Canaanites living during Mm -hmm. this time. And so kind of unpack what exactly you meant by that and what the implication would be from that text.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and, let me back up to say one thing. I think one of the other big problems with Jesus from a Roman perspective is that Jesus is setting up alternative communities, and they're living in opposition to Rome because— I mean, if, uh, there's, there's a whole other podcast here about Jesus and economics, but this is the rabbit hole I've been down. But Jesus really is creating a <laughs> resistance movement. I mean, if you notice, every time somebody asks Jesus about taxes or coins, he doesn't have any. He just doesn't carry them. He's not participating. So he's setting up these alternative communities that then become a larger problem because now he's, he's expanding them beyond the people we expect, um, which is the beauty of the Jesus story. But this woman, this woman she's Canaanite in the story, according to Matthew and Mark. She's phoenician which would have been a more accurate description you know and mark wrote first so matthew at some point had access to mark and is reading mark's account and goes you know what i'm going to do here i'm going to make this interesting and the shift he makes i think is the ultimate it's almost like you know mark when mark told the story mark wasn't explicit enough because it's possible that somebody may miss what's really going on here I want them to see the radical nature of what's about to happen. Let's make her, oh, I don't know. Let's make her a Canaanite. Somebody that inside our own tradition, we were taught that we were to exterminate, genocide. That, you know, they had something that we wanted and that we could kill them to get it. And that was not only okay, but it was what God wanted. And then Jesus comes along in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew weaves this beautiful narrative of Jesus sort of carrying around some of that nationalist, um, understanding and then this experience trans of a canaanite woman you know it's one thing to meet a syrophoenician woman and have this experience it's another thing to meet the actual other the person you have been taught, yeah. taught to be prejudiced against because that's ultimately what happens here jesus comment you know you don't take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs it, it's tantamount to racism and prejudice and that's what's that it's that sort of slur against this woman when you call somebody a dog you're, you're saying you're beneath us. You're not as human as we are.
2: Yeah, he wasn't complimenting her at that point.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is this, this is this is
2: not. Hey, you know,
1: it's not. Hey, you know, we're just. I, my work is something else. It's sort of like you're not worthy of my work. Yeah, you're not on the guest list to the party. There's a yeah. It was very.
2: <laughs> it was very purposeful. It wasn't. Oh, I'm busy right now, or I don't. I don't have anything to give you. I'm sorry. If I if I did, I would. It was. You're not part of our mission like like this isn't right now what we're what we're here to do what we're supposed to be doing and there's just a pivot that seems to take place and I had never seen that before until you brought that out that after this encounter the whole ministry changes at that point <laughs> and you know we, we tend to jump to at least we did in school, and and, and is the way we were taught to read Scripture. We we read it as if, okay, well, during this time, there's this limited commission, and then all of a sudden, after Jesus is resurrected, we have the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, as if it just took place overnight, but it already started to take place, and it seems to have begun in, in Matthew 15. Are there any other instances where Jesus encounters someone who is a Gentile, that has this kind of impact on jesus uh prior to this point um I, you
1: know i think he i have synoptic gospel harmonization in my head right now which is unhelpful right because we end up well, they're so similar we end up just putting so and i know i think it happens in john too but that's a wildly different text but the, the, I, there's like a centurion sermon i think he heals at some point but I, yeah that I, would have been before this but uh you know I'm not...
0: Don't quote me on that. <laughs> well, so I, I think one that of, happens at some point. Well,
1: one so of this, the,
2: this is really... Well, sorry, Lee. I was just no. going to say, so this is really that defining... And, and especially uh, when you get into chrono... You know, trying to get into chronological order with the gospel accounts, that can really be a... a best, get hairy. Because yeah. they didn't even write in yeah. chronological order. Ancient biographies, for those listening, our audience, uh, ancient biographies right, were not even written try. in chronological order. That Yeah, that wasn't the point. And so... So we, we really even aren't sure, um, but I, I would tend to agree with you uh, that this really is the definitive line. the The first time we see Jesus making the 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 jump, the switch, the change in his actual actions of teaching, preaching, evangelizing, getting the good news out to the the Jews only, to now being inclusive and Jesus whole ministry is a ministry of progressive inclusion I believe and it's capped off with Matthew 28 19 through 20 um, but sorry Lee you, you were going to say something I didn't mean to interrupt you
0: no no that's fine man now one of the things that's really interesting to me about this this discussion is is what you just mentioned about the nationalistic purview or perspective that Jesus apparently had in this where he speaks in terms of, you know, not, you know, feeding the dogs from the master's table and making some statement like that. And whenever you have the Jesus that's envisioned in John's gospel, and I really appreciate you saying how wildly different it is, because it is John's point was entirely different from the synoptic writers. But whenever you see that picture of Jesus presented in John, you see the picture of Jesus presented in scripture and you see the picture of Jesus that we all understand as being a, you know, not just God manifest in the flesh, but also a man of love a man of unconditional love, you know, a statement like this coming from him, it can be jarring whenever we view it from that perspective. So it almost seems as if Matthew really is trying to make this point that the gospel is for everybody. Um, But even with that, that kind of gets into this idea of some of the pushback that people may have against this idea of jesus being corrected or jesus you know shifting his perspective from that of jewish nationalism to that of a more inclusive gospel there are people that would push back against that there are people that would balk at that i know i at one point definitely would have and even now at this point in my own life I find myself still kind of struggling to accept this idea that maybe this was a perspective that Jesus had, if if it wasn't a narrative device that the writer of Matthew is using to make this point. But you know, I, I know that there are people that would say whenever you say something to the effect of, well, Jesus himself was corrected, and that's an expression of his humanity, there are people that aren't going to be able to accept that. Because to say that Jesus was corrected is to say that Jesus was not omniscient. That's to say that Jesus had a flawed understanding or a flawed perspective. And ergo, we have a Messiah who is now not perfect. We have a Savior who is not all-knowing and all-powerful. And if that's the case, what does that say about Jesus Himself? Does that mean that Jesus is now less than? Does that mean that Jesus falls short of that messianic perfection that we have come to expect of Him or that we perceive Him possessing in our modern Christian worldview? What do we do with a Jesus that is not infallible? What do we do with a Jesus that had to be corrected at this point?
1: I mean, to me, it's it's welcome to the three-dimensional Jesus, um, not just a flat figure. I mean, I, I think honestly uh, that so much of modern Christianity, and by, by well, it's just not to say modern, um, since Nicaea, um, as hard as they wanted to push against it, so much of Christianity has developed into a sort of docetism, which is yes. which is a heresy which is a heresy I don't go for, believe it or not. There, there are a couple. Of, um, and because I, I, I actually think, I actually think it's it, it's destructive. Um, and so, I mean, for example, perfect is a Greek idea. That's not a yeah. Jewish idea. So the idea of perfection is something being static and unchanging. That's you know, when we translate something in the Bible as perfect, what the actual better term would be complete um, or whole, which is which is different than sort of static and nothing to learn, nothing to do, no, no way to grow. Um, so, you know, I think a Jesus who, look, I think if you sat down with Jesus and said, Hey, tell me how the solar system works, he would say solar what? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, If you were, if you were to ask Jesus, like, tell me how we treat microbial infections. How do we get rid of viruses? I think he would say, what's, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Because those are things that just weren't. Things that were known and understood at that point. So I, you know, I, I firmly um, believe that Jesus was a human being, a human who had to learn and grow. He didn't, you know, come out the womb walking and talking. He had to learn and he had to grow and he had to experience. And and part of the, that's part of the human journey. Yeah, part of what makes one fully human is to to be confronted with something new that you didn't know before. And all Jesus had been given was what was in front of his face. Um, And Richard Rohr has this great line. He says, you don't know, you can't, you can't see what you weren't told to look for. And so there's this like, there's this, like, you just don't see it. And then you have an experience and that experience knocks off the blinders and you're open to something brand new and the actual sin would be rejecting it. Yeah. If you want, if you want to assume sin and by the time this comes out, I'm not sure when this will release, but by the time this comes out, I'm going to write a, an article on my Substack this week about sin and how sin is ultimately not a four letter word. It's a three letter word. And we get so lost in the sins, plural, that we miss the fact that what the Bible actually talks about almost always outside of here and there is sin singular, like, like this idea of sin, um, which is working against wholeness, working against shalom, working against God's dream for the world. And so for Jesus to, in that moment, go, wow, that's better information than I had, but I'm going to double down anyway. That was where Jesus would be teetering into working against what God's actually doing in the world.
0: Now, that's a really, really solid point, and I never really thought about it within those terms, but I definitely think you're onto something there, because whenever sin is discussed, it is discussed in— not really in so much of a checklist way, although you do see some lists of some things sure. that Paul alludes to in some of the epistles. But whenever you you boil it all down to its essence, what you see represented within those sins, we might say, is this undergirding worldview that causes harm to others or it causes harm to to the cause of Christ. It causes harm to to, to the entire Christian message. And it's, it's really more reflective of a mindset that is unyielding and unwilling to evolve with that greater narrative or that greater life that, that Christ came to ultimately deliver. And if Jesus would have resisted that Canaanite woman or Syrophoenician woman, if you prefer. That really would have been to miss the mark. That would have been to reject the inclusiveness that God had envisioned for the church for the whole reason that he sent Jesus into the world in the first place. And that's that's an angle that I hadn't considered before.
1: Well, if you think yeah, about but- sin, sin is the systemic. It's the thing that's got its roots in the in the dirt. Sins are all the little ways that maybe manifest and pops up. But you know, in the church, we have spent generations playing whack-a-mole with sins. Not realizing that the <laughs> yeah. actual thing is this systemic dehumanizing, um, anti—I don't want to say anti God, but this, this anti-goodness, anti-Shalom. The thing that is working not to bring wholeness and make the world a better place, a more holistic place, but it's trying to break it apart and divide it and poison it. We're not dealing with that at all. And anytime somebody brings that up, like then you get accused of. Like being over in well, you're you're dabbling in social justice, or you're like actually there are these systemic this systemic thing called sin. And here's can I do a little Bible trivia with you all? Is that okay? Yeah, sure, sure. Sure. As As long as as
2: Lee has to answer, uh, (laughs) unless I know it, and then
1: I get Kevin's
0: better at this than I am. So yeah.
1: When does sin enter the story in the Bible?
0: Oh right. man,
2: I, I'm I'm thinking this is a trick question now.
0: Well, well I'm gonna, gonna go. Oh yeah, well for sure it's a trick question, but I don't <laughs> care. I'm gonna answer it anyway. I mean, so what? I'll, hey Kevin, I'll sacrifice myself on this altar just for you, so you can save face. <laughs> um, I would say that it enters in the yeah. very beginning whenever Eve succumbs to the temptation of the serpent.
2: So I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Can I answer? Okay, okay, yeah. here we go. This Come is on. this is fun now. I'm gonna say prior to that. And at least the Genesis story, because you already had the representation of sin and evil in, uh, in the serpent.
1: Here's what's really fascinating. The word sin does not pop up in the first three chapters of Genesis.
2: Nothing is named
1: sin in those first three chapters. Like If you go read it all the way through, the word sin never pops up. Sin is first mentioned in chapter four. And it's first mentioned when Cain is angry and resentful of his brother. And the divine comes to Cain and says, listen, sin is crouching by your door and it wants to master you, but you have to rule over it. So sin enters the story. The first time we get the word sin, a word that translates sin, it's sin is this predator trying to pounce on Cain. And of course, the sin Cain ends up, and this is sin, just sin, not Sins. Like he doesn't go down the road and commit a couple sins. The, the sin is him killing his brother. It's acting out in violence toward another human being. That's when sin itself, we are introduced to the idea in Scripture. In chapter 3, so, so- it's never mentioned. And I grew up with the whole, well, when you sin, it makes God go away from you and God can't be near you, which is a terrible reading of Genesis 3. Because the first thing God does is show up in the garden to walk with them. Yeah. God doesn't move. And then when they're like, "Hey, we're naked," God's like, "Well, I'll dress you, and we'll go anyway." <laughs> I mean, like God isn't God isn't put off by them. God does something for them, but sin itself—the word—where um, so this is a thing pops in at the murder of Abel, right before the murder of Abel by, by his brother.
0: Well, so this. this oh, go ahead, Kevin.
2: Oh, I was going to say. So this may be going off topic. We, we're going to have to have you come back on for. Uh, uh, just a whole podcast on sin, but what is your understanding then of what Paul said in Romans five twelve that just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, and this way, uh, death came to all people because all sinned, and which he's referring back to the to the Adam and Eve story there. So, what, yeah. what would your would you just say that was Paul's understanding, or is he putting forth a different narrative?
1: I, I think that at some point Adam became you know the the first human became. I think what Paul's doing is he's creating a a Adam is symbolic of humanity. Jesus is symbolic of new humanity.
0: Yeah, yeah. type and anti-type. Right?
1: So yeah. as, as sin entered the world through humanity, so life enters the world through the new human. So, I, you know, I don't know that I, – I just have questions about how literal – sh- I mean, there's part of me that's like, yeah, I bet they did take Adam and Eve literally. But there's also part of me that thinks I, – I think they were probably more way more nuanced than we have Give been them proud be. it You know, I just well, think they are. were.
0: One of the things that in that whole question, that whole thread brings to mind, and it ties back into this idea of Jesus being corrected. And it's that idea of the presuppositions and the spiritual and doctrinal worldviews and motifs that we inherit and we just claim as fact. Like Mm -hmm. the idea, you know, where is sin first mentioned? You know, that question you say, well, of course, who's not going to say the garden, right? Who's not going to say it's the garden story where Eve eat is tempted of the serpent and she eats the fruit and then she gives it to Adam and he eats. That's when sin enters the world. I mean, that's what I was raised to believe. I and mean, Kevin, I'll speak for you. I'm sure that's probably what you were raised to believe as well. And Yeah. Yeah. We were all raised to believe that. That's something that we all understand. That is something that we have inherited. That is an inherited belief, or it represents part of that inherited belief system that we just take for granted. And in the same way, we really take this idea of a perfect, omniscient Jesus for granted as well. Because if you would have said, you know, if someone, if, if you would have asked me that question, you know, even just maybe two or three years ago, you know, if you sat down with Jesus and you asked him, how does the solar system work? My answer would have been, well, we live in a heliocentric solar system in which there are eight planets. Pluto. Yeah. It's kind of on the, kind of on the edge there. And you know what? Yeah. Pluto hasn't even been discovered or named yet, but that's what you guys are going to call it. of like Marty McFly on back to the future where he says, yeah, you know, you guys are maybe, uh, maybe this is a little late for you guys, but your kids are going to love this music whenever he jams out to Chuck Berry there at the end. Yep. But but that's the perspective of Jesus that I have. You have someone who is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything about everything because he is divine. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus knew the hearts of those who came before him. He knew what was on their minds. He knew all of these other things. And in that sense, that is a baked in inherited belief, which is why it would be so easy For people to push back against this idea of Jesus being corrected or Jesus having a new perspective presented to him by not a man who is learned, not an Israelite man, not a Pharisee, not a Hellenist, not even a Sadducee, not a scribe or a keeper of the law or an expert in the law. But it's a woman who comes to him and not just a woman at that. It's a Canaanite woman. Someone who would be for
1: Jesus. That's on brand for Jesus. Like who, who discovers the empty tomb? It's not Peter or anybody like that. It's it's these women. It's Jesus continually. The story of Jesus continually takes the people who you would least expect and centers them and makes them the heroes of the story. Like in this story, (laughs) Jesus isn't the hero. Yeah. The Canaanite woman is the hero.
0: Yeah. And that completely turns the entire patriarchal narrative drive of so much of that culture and that time on its head, it, it completely upends everything. And that's one of the things that's so remarkable about scripture, at least to me is how it even enmeshed within that patriarchal culture. And even with those rivulets of patriarchy that, that you find, you know, and threaded within scripture because of the culture in, in which it came from, you still see all of that being turned on its head over and over and over again. So Kevin, I'm sorry, you had something you wanted to throw in there.
2: Well, no, I was just going to make a couple of comments. So the the first thing is that if there's a maturation to scripture, then why wouldn't we also think that there would be to Jesus? And that goes back to that first passage that we talked about in Mark, that Jesus grew. (laughs) He grew in these different ways. And Josh, you brought this point up. When Jesus was born, uh, at that point in time, could anyone go up to baby Jesus and ask baby Jesus questions and him be able to answer? Or did Jesus have to learn how to talk? Uh, you know, was Jesus able to change his own diaper or did, did you know, did somebody have to do that for him? And while these things may seem funny and, and trivial, the, the idea behind it is that Jesus did have to learn things. And this doesn't mean that he was not God, but even Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself. And while I don't, I'm not going to even pretend to know exactly all of what all that encompasses, I do believe that while Jesus was here, he was still 100% man. I I mean, I think that's the only way that we can understand the, the gospel narrative, as you put it, that it's not the idea that he only appeared to be human because if you were a, a you know if you believed in dualism and you believed that flesh was evil that could be your only conclusion but when you understand that no Jesus was he was flesh he literally dwelt among us this is god accommodating us god coming to us and in doing that there was sacrifice before the sacrifice just him coming to earth was a sacrifice and so that that's one thing i wanted to just bring up is that to argue that there is a maturation in scripture, but not through Jesus, is seems to be a bit disingenuous, at least inconsistent, right? Because if Jesus wasn't just born knowing everything and able to do everything, then we would say that he had to learn some things and even spiritual matters. Now, a couple of, of things that I want to bring up that people are probably going to push back on, getting back to this subject, because I really do want to have you back on. Um, maybe we can get that go ahead and get that scheduled to have you back on to talk about <laughs> sin. Cause I think that would be a phenomenal conversation. I've already got like 101 questions in my mind, but I don't want to sidetrack on that. But getting back, getting back to Matthew 15, I was taught that that story was Jesus allowing his disciples to learn how to love Gentiles and that Jesus was just testing them. He was actually testing the woman and, this was his way of not only testing her and bringing about her faith so that the disciples could experience that, but also so the disciples could learn that they need to, to love the Gentiles as well. And some passages that have been paralleled that I was taught to use to parallel to make that point would be in Genesis 3. We just talked about that when in, in the, that story there, where when Adam and Eve, when they take of that fruit, God comes out and it's like, where are you? <laughs> where, where, where are you, Adam and Eve? And, and the idea is, well, God obviously knew where Adam and Eve actually, he knew where they were. He, he wasn't shocked by that or anything, but he was allowing them to come to an understanding. And so what would you say about that response to Matthew 15?
1: I would say it would be like trying to teach your kid that it's not okay to dehumanize somebody and use certain words about somebody. By going up to somebody and dehumanizing somebody and using those words about somebody. <laughs> I mean, it actually, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll it, but like, it's Jesus being a jerk. If that's what he's doing, if he's like, Oh, I have the best plan ever. I'm going to dehumanize this woman to prove to my disciples. They shouldn't dehumanize people. I mean, that's, that's, I, I just think that ends up creating a whole other mess because yeah. it, it doesn't value the woman, which is, I mean, Hey, we, You know, we grew up with patriarchal readings of the Bible. So we were taught not to value the women in the story. Um, That's why on Easter, we're not celebrating, you know, the women at the tomb. We're talking all about Simon Peter or John or somebody else, because we've been taught to decenter women when they're the hero or the heroine in the story. And so I think that we've we've kind of been taught not to value her contribution. We've been taught. And so if Jesus is doing that, then he's just basically saying, well, her feelings don't really matter. So let's just teach these guys a lesson by using her as an object.
0: Well, and whenever that happens, Oh, go ahead. Sorry, man.
1: As opposed to what I think is a more powerful and even a more human understanding of the story, which is Jesus is just flat out wrong in his opinion on this. And this woman showed up in flesh and blood and challenged him. And it was a moment that changed his understanding of his work. And it changed his understanding of who she was. And then, Further, it helped a whole lot of people,
0: (laughs) right? One of the things that comes to mind is if that were the case, Kevin, and what you were saying, because that's how I was taught to understand it too, is that Mm -hmm. Jesus is just testing this woman. He's just kind of pushing back against her just to see just how great her faith is and to demonstrate to the disciples how great her faith could be. Well, if that's the case, I'm like, you're saying, Josh, if that is the case, I, you know, whenever you put it in those terms like that, that Jesus is, you know, going to teach them how not to use a slur by using a slur, so to speak, that in and of itself to me creates an even bigger problem than Jesus having to change his mind or Jesus being challenged on something and realizing that maybe his perspective isn't the best. It paints our savior as someone who's disingenuous. It paints our savior as someone who is not following his own advice to let his yes be yes and his no be no. This is a dude who is using Sutterfuge and he's using this crafty, passive aggressive way of teaching some lesson. He's kind of like the Bluth family in hiring J. Walter Weatherman to teach his kids to leave a <laughs> note like on Arrested element or something. You know, it's, Jesus is he's he's engaging in a, a type of behavior that is everyone would agree that's not Christ-like behavior at all. If I were to teach my kids a lesson that way, if I were to teach my congregants a lesson that way, if I had congregants, which I don't, but if I were to teach a lesson that way, people would be like, well, that's not very Christian of you. That's not very Christ-like. And yet we'll say jesus himself is not being christian or christ-like whenever he does that
2: <laughs> well and yeah and josh i think you bring up a really good point because you addressed this in your lesson and this was a a common objection that you addressed in your in your speech and and just in your speech i thought you did a really good job in the way that you just explained that because it's one thing to say jesus was playing ignorant to teach a lesson it's another to say that he was mistreating someone in order to teach a lesson, that that that, that those are are two big different uh, things. <laughs> That's that is that is not the same idea. And there are times when any parent may allow a child to think something or believe something, and they're teaching a lesson. But to ever put their child in harm's way, or to ever harm someone else, whether it's physically or emotionally, in order to to make that point, is certainly something that would be contrary to everything else. We see about the gospel message and everything else we see about Jesus prior and even going forward. And Lee, I, I just thought you made a really good point on that. That when when the answer that we propose ends up resulting in a bigger problem, then we didn't really answer the question. I, all, all we've done now is we, you know, if, if 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 you have a hole in your boat and you say, well, maybe let's let's put another hole in the boat. Well, you didn't just help. You, you now have created a bigger problem. And I think now, if that's the case, we have to ask ourselves why Jesus would act that way. And by the way, when I was very legalistic, when I was doing all my formal debating, I have used this passage in such a way to say you can be harsh toward people. I literally have used that passage. And uh, looking back, I can say that it did not result in anything I would consider to be Christ-like. And, and so when you do believe that and you approach Matthew 15 in that way, that Jesus was just mistreating her and, well, hey, I can call people dogs because Jesus called this woman a dog. Uh, and if she's really faithful, she wouldn't get offended. And I, I preached on that, that tr- truth doesn't offend those who, who really love God with a good heart. You can even call someone a dog and they'll still follow you. So it doesn't matter how you preach the truth as long as you teach it. And people with honest hearts will follow you. And that was the moral of the story that I used to take from Matthew 15 that I now completely disagree with. But you know, some, something else that has really dawned on me when we're talking about this is when you, when you look at the greater context of of what you have said uh, defining as sin. And I, I was even thinking about James chapter one, where James talks about sin. And he says a, a person's tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil de- desires. And then uh, that desire has conceived, it, then it gives birth to sin. And you said that had Jesus heard what this woman said and saw her faith, don't even the dogs... Any little puppies get the crumbs that fall from the master's table and if he'd have said yeah well screw you you're a Gentile you're you know I'm just gonna go on with my life <laughs> then uh, then perhaps we would be having some problems figuring out how Jesus uh, could be called uh, the fulfillment uh, you know of, of who God is um, but if Jesus was approached with this and when he's corrected he allows himself to change part of being a christian is transforming and when we don't know what we don't know it is only when we're approached with that situation that we have the opportunity to act upon that and jesus did exactly that he acted upon that by saying whoa you're right how, how could i no i don't i don't i need to be teaching you i need to be allowing you to be my disciple i need to be feeding you i need to be loving you i need to be including you and taking care of you i need to be showing you love etc 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 all of a sudden, it, that makes a whole lot more sense, and I had never really thought about it that way. Because we say the same thing with Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five four Yeah, you have to be perfect, just as God is perfect in heaven. How many Christians are walking around uh, saying, "Hey, I'm sin? You know, I I've, I literally am sinless. I have never made any mistakes." We would say, "Well, that means we need to we need to not be uh, perfect as far as sinless perfection, but we need to be complete. We need to be whole. And even the idea of sinless perfection, as I just described it." Is not really in keeping with the time anyway. During that period, that wouldn't have really made much sense to them. Um, that's 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 more of a uh, of a somewhat newer uh, Western <laughs> concept, Very right? Much
1: so. I mean, our, almost yeah. all of our concepts of sin are grounded in e- either Greek philosophy, Greek religion, or even more recent modern things than ideas than that. For example, Jew, the and I have this new theory that if um, if I read a, if I read the Bible and um a a jewish friend reads it and my reading is off the wall to them i'm probably i'm the one wrong yeah when 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 my jewish friends read the first three books they don't talk about original sin it's not a concept it actually wasn't a concept until really augustine and i think if you even talk to paul who augustine uses paul would say i don't that's not it's not what i actually meant (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're putting words in my mouth? But yeah, I mean, the way we, and I have so much more I want to say on that. So you definitely should invite me back because
2: that would be fun. Well,
0: I, I think we will. We'll just go ahead and extend that invitation now and we'll, we'll talk afterwards or we'll It's already there. We'll so the audience,
2: out. cause I, cause look, I have like so many questions, but I don't, I don't want to get off topic. Uh, <laughs> but, but, my, but my point is in bringing that up, if someone does say, well, does that not mean Jesus sinned? not within a true biblical definition of sin of how God defines it and how they would have understood it because Jesus did not say, yeah, you know, you're, you're right. Even, even the dogs do get the crumbs, but you're not, you're not going to get anything and you're not worth anything. Then at that point, we might be having that conversation that, that may have, uh, uh, posed some problems for us, but I think because of even how James won, uh, there describes sin in that process and how Jesus responds and how it changes his life. Which, by the way, is that not what encounters with people are supposed to do? And you know, we think of revelation as being tied to the literal text of Scripture instead of understanding it's something that's constantly evolving and that yeah. it's there. There is a universal spirit in the Bible that is that is embedded there, but that it continues to grow. And when we encounter people, do we not have more love? I mean, gee, i I'm just thinking in my mind right now all of the times Jesus was changed because of compassion. You know, he was on his way to go do something else. And what changed? Well, he saw someone who needed help and he had compassion toward them. Is that not changing based upon experience? Of course it is. And I was literally just watching a pod. It wasn't a podcast. It was a a panel of about four or five people discussing different Bible topics. And someone just, of course, you know, I used to be the same way, so no judgment toward this individual. But they said, well, the, this is what the Bible says, and we, can, we cannot use compassion or mercy or any other emotion to override that. And I'm thinking, well, tell that to Jesus in Mark chapter one, where he violates Leviticus chapter five in order to touch someone who has leprosy. I mean, clearly Jesus saw that having compassion on someone was more important than following the letter of the law. And so this seems to be not an exact parallel, but it does seem to correlate with the idea of changing when we experience people, that whether it's compassion, whether it's grace, whether it's mercy, whether it's a realization that we've just been mistreating people or having the wrong idea, that changes not just in that instance and situation, but that can change the whole, our whole framework and worldview, as you pointed out.
1: Yep. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I just think it's a much more, this Jesus is more interesting. And it's actually, he's yeah. modeling something for his disciples. I mean, he's modeling the thing that was never modeled for me growing up, which is somebody going, I've got an opinion. Then somebody presenting something else and then going, wow, my opinion is not great. <laughs> actually, I need to change it. And I like Jesus has a conversion experience here. He he he's converted from being somebody who's approaching something with a very narrow lens to not oh this thing is bigger. This work is is it's going to affect more people than I actually thought.
0: Well, before we hit record on this, we whenever we were just kind of talking about you know kind of what the the general. Uh, structure of this conversation would be, you know, we talked a little bit about the humanity of Jesus and Jesus being fully human and experiencing, as the Hebrew writer says, you know, the, the full breadth of humanity. And he is, you know, not tempted in some way that we are not tempted. You know, he's, he experiences all that there is to experience of, of what it means to be a human growing and having your perceptions challenged And then changing them is a fundamental aspect of growing and maturing as a human being. And if Jesus had not experienced that, then it does stand to reason that he wouldn't have experienced that full breadth of what it means to be human. And he wasn't tempted in all ways, even as we are yet without sin. And it it really reminds me of a perspective that I used to have, you know, this idea of the others and having this nationalistic perspective You know, one of the most vilified groups, and I I don't want to, you know, jump into a whole other subject here, but one of the most vilified groups within evangelicalism, within Christianity at at large, I would say, are those of the LGBTQ community. And I was raised to view these people as much less than these are people who are undesirable. These are people who are, you know, some of the worst of the worst. They are disease addled, disease ridden, sick, demented people. And we don't need to cross the street to pee on them if they're on fire. I mean, that's the kind of perspective that I was raised to view those in that LGBTQ community as. And that's a perspective that I held on to until i began to experience relationship with some of these people and there are many of them who express you know some of the foundational principles of christianity loving neighbor as yourself better than some lifelong christians that i have known in my over my entire life These are people that would literally give you the shirt off their back. These are people that demonstrate love for mankind and for their fellow man in ways that exemplify that Christian ethic. And whenever I began to see that for myself and I began to experience that for myself, it completely upended the entire narrative that I had been raised with. It completely changed my perspective on this population of people. And it was like, well, Holy smokes. And that's not to say that there aren't members of the LGBTQ community that are jerks because there are just like there are jerks in every community out there, but it really goes to show how we really do grow when we allow people to, I don't want to say influence us. That's the wrong word, but our experiences with people should change us whenever we experience something like that. And we see that represented and we see that presented in the story of Jesus.
2: Well, yeah, and know. I like. How, Go ahead, Kevin. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, you know, we've been talking about the idea of the others, and that's anyone who's not like us. So that that can be really anybody because we have us and what we know and what's true and what's right. Then we have everybody else, <laughs> those who don't agree with us or see it that way, and that just seems to be the whole meta narrative of the gospel accounts: is that we are to love and accept. The others, which it was, it's ironic because that was a message that I used to mock. I used to mock that as being a modern message, a message of, you know, oh, everybody just wants to hold hands and sing kumbaya and be inclusive and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was, I thought I was quote unquote sticking to the truth when I was fighting against that, when I was being exclusive. And when I was making it very difficult for people to be part of my circle as if they wanted to be a part of my circle at that time anyway, but I was really thinking that I was standing for the gospel truth. I was patting myself on the back. When I started changing, I'll be the first to tell people being inclusive is much more difficult. You talk about taking up your cross and following Jesus. Now you tell me to be exclusive any day. I can do that, man. Like you tell hey Kevin, go and hang out with your kind and people who believe like you and tell everybody else that they're going to hell and they need to act and think like you. I can do that all day long. But when I begin to have to say, "Ooh, even them? E- even even they're okay?" We had, a, we had a, apparently there was a good Facebook discussion. I'm not on Facebook, but someone was telling me about it on our on our, uh, on Facebook, on our blog group, because uh, they were talking about how the, the Good Samaritan, you know, really was Jesus like actually saying someone who may not really know God is still keeping the royal law because they're loving their neighbor as themselves and they have eternal life is really like, that's too much. That's too much. Because it is like when, when you really see what Jesus is teaching in his extreme love and acceptance, that is a much harder Belief overall, because to accept someone that is different, and look, I ju- I still judge people all the time. This is personal confession time here. I mean, I you
0: jerk. How I, dare I, I, you?
2: In, you know, because I want people to look like me, to act like me, to do the things that that I do, to believe the the way that I believe, and I catch, I have to catch myself constantly at this because that's the flesh. That's the flesh. But you see, the fruit of the spirit defined as something completely different. And so, what what is go back to my original point. What is ironic about all this is that people oftentimes condemn others for trying to justify what they want to do in including people, when in reality, all they're doing is justifying themselves for why they're not including people.
1: Yep. Yep. And, you know, Lee, you you raised the the LGBTQ plus community and that community is so near and dear to my heart. Um, You know, Grace Point, the community I pastor, um, we have a very large population of LGBTQ people, um, and I'll say throughout my ministry of 20 years, I've experienced God in the presence of Jesus more, most beautifully, um, in my LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And it was a, an, exa- I mean, this actually the inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community for me is an example of, if you just think about the way this worked, Jesus in front of his disciples has an experience changes his mind so then when simon peter is sitting on a roof and he has this experience that calls him beyond his boundaries and the dividing lines of jew and gentile and he's no no it's bigger than that so peter has the courage the courage to go to cornelius's house where the, there's a second pentecost and the spirit falls on the gentiles and he's like well i i, I think god's trying to tell me something here that that i shouldn't <laughs> call anybody unclean who he's called clean and, and so as Peter models that, then what that should be for me, that was a model for me to say, I know I've been taught this my entire life, but I do know that when I'm with my LGBTQ siblings, I experience God's presence and God's goodness through them in beautiful ways. How can I call anything or anyone unclean that God has called them, um, that God has called clean? And for me, th- this is one of those things that it, it is the work that Jesus talks about in John. I have much more to tell you, but the spirit will come and will lead you into truth. And so for me, my, accept, my, my affirmation and embrace of the LGBTQ plus community is a natural outflow of Jesus changing his mind with the Canaanite woman and of Simon Peter having his opinion and his perspective transformed on who really could be a part of this thing. I know Jesus did that a little bit, but like, can we really make Gentiles part of this thing? And, you know, who, who knows? There are so many things we need to change our mind on um throughout i think in the modern world but for me it really was these stories and they're an invitation to rethink those things like why are we excluding the lgbt plus why why are we not seeing them as beloved divine image bearers made in god's image who can reveal god to us just like you know other people so that for me this story is i think one of those stories where when people ask me, do you think Paul or Jesus, if they were walking the earth right now, would they affirm the LGBTQ Absolutely. They would affirm the LGBTQ community because if they didn't, they would meet somebody at a coffee shop and they would sit down and they would have a conversation and that conversation would change their hearts and they would change their minds. I really fully believe that.
0: Yes, sir. Well, I think we have had a really good discussion, and I don't know if there's anything else that you guys would like to add to this before we bring it to a close or wrap it up. Um, Kevin, do you have any parting words or comments or anything?
2: Yeah, I, I did. Do we have time for one more question? Because yeah, yeah,
0: brother, we got nothing but time. I just thought, wow, that's a really natural place to kind of put a period on the conversation. But and if then you got I more brother. We hey, room. let's
2: go. Let's go back to a uh, <laughs> question number. Five. Three hundred and twenty two for Josh. So, Josh, this is something you and I discussed uh, when I heard you teach the lesson that I was just curious about, because this this these these are just questions that I think, well, I know that I had. And then also that I'm sure people listening may have to just make sure that they have a a good working understanding of how all of this can can make sense to them. Mm -hmm. And one one of the things that um that, that I really thought long and hard about when when I heard you first teach on this is do you think that that Jesus knew that ultimately he would be inclusive of of all nations? Because and, and the reason why is simply because of passages um, that speak about Jesus saying like my time has not come and you know this this is I, I this isn't my time right now. Which And there's there's times where Jesus does seem to signify, and even the gospel account writers will even say Jesus was signifying this about, you know, he's talking about his death. So do you think he understood ultimately um, that he was even going to be dying or going to the cross? Kind of unpack that just for a couple minutes, if you would. So, wow,
1: we could go for hours. (laughs) Um,
0: so <laughs> yeah, you, just a real softball question there, Josh. Uh, yeah, yeah just so so all right.
2: so, so I, I this love, is the, the this third topic. time we're gonna have you come on our you know, we're gonna mm-hmm. have to have we've we have like six episodes scheduled out because of this episode, Josh.
1: <laughs> I, I love this topic. I think it's really important. So, you know a lot most of the references to my time are in John,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and John is doing something else. you know all all of the gospels are theological portraits. John is a theological portrait turned up to 11, right? So in the gospels, Jesus' death and, and the synoptics, Jesus' death is kind of viewed as a defeat in the beginning before Easter. In John, uh, the cross is the, the moment of enthronement, right? The cross is Jesus ascending to his throne. So John is, is coming from a different perspective. I do, you know, I, I do think it's important to understand for me that the gospels are theological portraits. And sometimes mm-hmm. we read them from here going forward instead or from here going backward instead of reading them from from jesus day going forward so the way i would frame it you know do i think jesus lived his life telling his disciples he was going to go die on the cross no i think it became very apparent to jesus especially as his ministry and his, his confrontation with the roman authorities began to escalate i think doing and saying the things jesus was doing one of the things i always go back to is during holy week if you notice, Jesus is popping into Jerusalem, stirring it up, and leaving. Well, that's not a guy who's like, please arrest me, because I know what that <laughs> is. <laughs> it's, it's a guy who's like, it's guerrilla theater. It's, I'm going to go in and challenge the system. I don't really want it. I, I, I don't want this to end yet. So <laughs> I'm going to go back out. and just, So, I mean, you don't need, if, if Jesus has a death wish, you don't need a betrayer. If Jesus True. has a death wish, True. he just walks into the temple, tears, tears, up, tears up everything, and says, now take me. So, yeah. no, I don't think – I think Jesus knew that the work he was doing, that was a definite possibility of where this could go. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was Jesus going around saying, this is imminent. And I'd also even say that about talking about Jesus as God. It's very easy for talking about Jesus as God looking from here going backward. The, yeah. real question, the real question I would have is, what was it about this human life that on the other side of it – because in John, there's stuff early, but in the synoptics, there's really not – what is what is it about this the life he lived and the way he lived it that led his followers on the other side of it to say when we were in his presence we were in the presence of the divine and and, and to say we now believe that Jesus and God when we use one, the word we're, for Jesus we're talking about God when we talk about God we're talking about Jesus that's not a thing that would have done during his life it's definitely something that transformed after his death in the Easter yeah. experience so um we could. I would love to do a whole show on that, too. That's just so much
2: fun. All right. So for the next three months, we're going to have Josh. Come on. <laughs> well, and, and this this is something because our audience is uh, we have thrown a lot at them recently with a lot of these types of of topics that are sometimes very,
0: meaty, very, uh, yeah, meaty. Yeah. And
2: they can also be alarming to people's faith when it's the first time that they have heard these things, because. Sure they almost feel a sense of maybe, are we attacking the Bible? Are we questioning Jesus and God? And, and here's one thing that I like to I want our audience to know is that we are questioning our understanding of God and scripture, and we should never ever take our understanding of scripture and God and equate that with scripture and God. And that is—it's so tempting to do that because when we start questioning ourselves, we start thinking, "Well, am I questioning God?" I mean, wow, these are some concepts I've never heard of. Maybe this—no, this, Kevin and Lee—you know—they've just gone too far. Um, some people thought I have got too far with with the Good Samaritan, and 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 it's one of those things where we have heard certain stories for so long, or we have had certain beliefs for so long that we feel like we are abandoning truth or Scripture, and. That's not at all what we're saying. Even when we say things like uh, compassion, and God is using it's or Jesus was corrected, it's it's that that's not anti-truth. That is truth. Like that that is an expression of what truth looks like. That is truth in action, truth demonstrated. And so, I just wanted to put that little qualifier and a little bit of information out there for folks listening that. This can be uncomfortable at first. Josh, I I know when I first started changing, I was very uncomfortable. Lee, I know you, I definitely know you were, because we had a lot of conversations. a lot
0: of conversations. Lee, Lee almost
2: withdrew fellowship from, no, I'm just kidding. But it was, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was one of those things when you start questioning these, these things, because it's a worldview. I mean, even though we all still believe in God and Jesus, the way we approach God, and, you know, I tell people all the time, the, the God I once believed in is not the God who I believe in now. Right, And, yeah. uh, you know, as far as the totality, I mean, I still think I had an underlining faith in those types of things, which gets more philosophical than theol- theol- theological. But the idea is that we all come to know Jesus more and better. And I th- and, and we come to know God throughout our lives. And I think even Jesus was, what is, I uh, believe it's Ephesians 5 verse, uh, verse 8 and 9, Jesus learned obedience. Well, does that not involve a little correction, discipline? I mean, what is discipline but education? And so you, you, there, there's just so many ways that you could take this here. But the idea that I just want to explain to our audience is there's going to be questions you have and not every question's ever going to be answered. But no matter what position you take, you're not going to be able to answer every single question. And sometimes the positions that you already hold to are causing bigger problems than you realize you've just never been faced with those. Yeah. So just wanted to end with that. That's so good right there. Yeah.
0: Well, Josh, thank you so much, man, for agreeing to come on our show again. We appreciate you. We appreciate your time. And since I gave Kevin the opportunity to uh, say something before we shut her down, do you have anything else you want to add, brother?
1: Uh, Just that, you know, I'm not one of those folks who likes to start conversations that I've been ducked out of. So if people have a follow-up for me, I'd be happy to engage. You can email me at um, josh at online. Uh, and I'd be happy to engage. I blog at joshscott.online. It's a new web address. So it's confusing for me, joshscott.online. Um, and yeah, I would, I'm, yeah, I'd be thrilled to continue the conversation with folks.
0: Fantastic. Josh, thank you so much, man. We appreciate you. We appreciate the work you're doing at Grace Point to, to carve out a more inclusive niche for, for Christ, for the church and to just continue to do that good work that's been going on for so long in your corner of the world, man. We thank you so much for all of your work and we look forward to having you back on in the future, brother.
2: We'll see you next week, Josh.
0: (laughs) 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 To our listeners, we thank all of you. We appreciate all of you. And if you have any questions for Josh, shoot him an email. We'll have his email linked in our show notes. I know he'd love to hear from you because if he wouldn't love to hear from you, he wouldn't make the offer. That's just kind of how he rolls. And the same thing goes for us. We love hearing from you guys as well. So, if you'd like to get a hold of us, shoot us an email. The email address is in the show notes. You can join our Facebook discussion group, even though Kevin's too good for it and he's not in it anymore. I'm I'm in there occasionally.
2: Look, that's the others, all right? I have absolutely no time for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to say if someone emails us about this episode, we'll say here's here's Josh's email, go ask yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> just holler at him. Yeah.
0: But but no, we love all of you. We appreciate all of you. Thank you all so much and we'll see you all again soon.